Ruth chapter 1. Before Israel had any kings, the tribes of Israel were all governed by quote-unquote judges. That term is kind of misleading to our Western ears. When we normally, when we hear the word judge, uh, we normally think of gavel, black robes, um, and a courtroom. The Israelite judges were not that. They were regional, political, military leaders, uh, very similar to uh, a, a tribal chieftain that you might encounter in the lawless regions of Afghanistan today. Certainly not a justice in the Ada County Courthouse. So the book of Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. It is a very disturbing, violent account of Israel's plunge into moral corruption, uh, chronicling all of the anarchy, wickedness, and terrible leadership that, uh, that was present, and how basically the people of God had, over the course of these years, become no different than the Canaanites whom previously occupied the land. And then this book that we're in today, the book of Ruth, is the one immediately following the book of Judges. And we read that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem, Bethlehem means house of bread, it's Beit Lechem, a man from the house of bread in Judah together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of the the arch enemy of Israel, Moab. And Moab means, who is your father? Or um, maybe sometimes it can be even translated as as, as father, father who, who? Uh, The man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech means, my God is king. His wife's name was Naomi, and her name I just thought it was interesting to, to hear all the, what, what all the names mean here, because the Israelites, they would have picked up on this. The woman's name was Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were named weak and frail. Yeah, not very nice mother. <laughs> they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. Ephrathah was the region the area basically surrounding Bethlehem. And they went to Moab to live there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, husband died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the, we don't know what Orpah means, and neither do we know what Ruth means, the other Ruth. And after they had lived there ten, about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her two daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on a road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, 
return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, which is the Hebrew word for bitter. Call me bitter. Call me bitter because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. We are spending four weeks in Ruth leading up through Advent, and what I'd like to do today is share with you some of the unique features about this uh, brilliant little story. Um, yeah, a few unique features regarding the book of Ruth, and then the most important part, and what we'll be hitting on each week, is how this book points us to Jesus, our Messiah. So the first interesting characteristic of the book of Ruth is it's misnamed. The main character of the book is not Ruth the Moabite, nor is it Boaz the Israelite farmer, whom we'll get introduced to in the next chapter. The main character of the book is actually this widow, Naomi. This is a widow's story, and you have to remember that widows were the most vulnerable socially and economically of all of the people in the ancient Near East. And then here we have Naomi, and Naomi is the worst kind of widow because, as she points out in the story, she's, uh, she's old. She has no prospects for remarriage, and she has no sons, no family to fall back on. So yes, the book is misnamed. We really should be reading, reading the book of Naomi, uh, there are a few reasons for this. Number one is she speaks about twice as many words as anybody, any other character in the story. And number two, you know, it begins obviously chronicling her miseries here in chapter one. But the real giveaway is when you come to chapter four, at the very end of the story, there is the birth of a son. And we read these words. That when, uh, rather, Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him, and then the women of the town they exclaimed, Naomi has a son. They do not exclaim as we would expect, 
Ruth has a son. I mean, after all, she gave birth to him. But they say that this, this person who's merely the grandmother, Naomi, has a son. It clearly tells us that this really is Naomi's story. Naomi's a very interesting cre- cre- uh, character, creature. I guess she was an interesting creature too, but um, Naomi's an interesting character because, did you catch it? Um, Naomi believes in God. She also believes that God is sovereign, but she does not believe that God is good. She believes that God is sovereign, but she does not believe that God is good. Did you notice all of these, all of the tragic events of her life, she attributes to God. She says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. The Lord um, has made me empty. She says, the Lord Almighty has made my life bitter. A A few different times, it's clear that she was a good Calvinist. I mean, she believed in sovereignty, but she also believed that God was a monster, not a lover. So really, what we have here is the story of a bitter woman, a bitter widow, who has been crushed by the events of life. A woman who, by her own description, is bitter and empty. And we're going to follow the story along, and we're going to find out at the very end that all of the judgments that have been leveled against this woman, finally, at the end, they are reversed. And the woman who is empty is She becomes filled, and the woman who is so bitter, she's filled with joy. And all of that happens um, through some just masterful storytelling, as we'll see. Second, the second interesting feature of the book of Ruth, at least I find this an interesting feature of the book of Ruth, is that the narrator never mentions, never directly mentions God doing anything Let me say that again. The narrator never mentions God doing anything directly throughout the story. So there are no moments of uh, the Lord parts the Red Sea. There um, There are no miracles. There are no visions. There are no dreams. There are no words that are spoken uh, by God to any of the people. The, um, I guess you would say the story, in a very real respect, describes our own, uh, the way that we go through life. I mean, I don't know about you, but God doesn't speak to me in visions or dreams, and I don't see too many miracles when I um, wake up in the morning. But as the story will tell us, God's providence is at work. He's behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and free choices of all of these characters. So while Naomi thinks that, that God is punishing her, and there is an interesting Uh, idea here. Some people suggest that Naomi is a picture of Israel. And in a sense, I mean, Israel during the judges was entirely unfaithful. And her, the famine that comes upon her, that was one of the curses of the covenant. Um, You could say that God was was judging her for, uh, for her unfaithfulness. But this isn't really the tragic story of God punishing someone. It's actually the story of God's mission to restore that someone, to restore Naomi and her family. And she does it through these noble choices of the characters. You have this man who, as I said, we'll meet next week, Boaz, a no-nonsense farmer who is full of generosity and kindness. And then you have this woman, Ruth. 
One of the most amazing speeches given throughout the entire Bible is the one that was given right here. Did you feel moved by that at all? Maybe I didn't read it effectively enough. But I mean, look at her speech. where She says, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. That's a beautiful statement of of fidelity and love. I've used this illustration before that if you look on the underside of a weaver's loom, what's on the underside of a weaver's loom? It's knots, it's frayed ends, it's uh, snarls and hanging strands. The underside of a weaver's loom is Naomi's perspective on life. She's gone through 10 years that feel like complete waste and three gravestones. And uh, that's her perspective on life. And that's our perspective on life when we're suffering. But as I've said before, we must not allow ourselves to be fooled by the underside. Stories like this in the Bible remind us that our God, the God we serve is a master weaver who knows how to make glorious tapestries. In fact, you can't make a glorious tapestry without a gnarled and frayed underside. The the beauty is there, but it's only seen from a particular perspective, a particular vantage point. Only from above or from distance away can you you see the colors of the loom and the the textures and the patterns and the styles and the fabrics. So the narrator never mentions God doing anything directly, but God's hand is behind God. All of these human decisions, and even behind Ruth's fidelity, and he weaves together through the faithful obedience of his people, a beautiful story of redemption. The third feature of Ruth that I'd like to draw to your attention is this. Ruth is a Moabite, um, and for us, that doesn't seem like a very big deal. But if you're an Israelite, that that would be a very big deal. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, Moses wrote a law which said basically that Moabites are excluded from membership in the community of Israel for 10 generations. It goes back to the moment of the Exodus when Israel was headed out into the wilderness. She was in her most vulnerable state, and the Moabites... They preyed upon her, they swooped down, and they killed her women and her children. So the Moabites, they were Israel's arch enemies. And the Moabites were a very wicked people, or so the the book of Genesis which suggests. Lot, the nephew of Abraham, impregnates one of his daughters. And in the book of Genesis, the whole race of Moabites reportedly comes from that incestuous union. They worship the false god Chemosh, And they were known for their great uh, sexual perversion. So 10 generations. For 10 generations, you're not allowed to enter into the community of Israel. So you say, okay, 40 years per generation. Let's say for for a rough estimate. That's 400 years. 400 years had not passed from the days of the Exodus to the beginning of the book of Ruth. So it seems as though Ruth should not be allowed into the community. Uh, another factor is that the number 10 in the Bible is oftentimes symbolic, 
You see a lot of tens in the Bible. It's symbolic of completeness or fullness. And if it's symbolism in this case, then it's symbolizing the ten generations would symbolize that the Moabites were completely, fully excluded from the community of Israel forever. That's a pretty strong uh, prohibition. Yet, Ruth says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And she is received into the community. And so the question is, what gives? Is this a contradiction? How can this be? And here's what I think is going on. Um, There's probably more than just this going on, but here's what I think. When Ruth makes this profession of faith, your God will be my God, she is a Moabite no more. When she makes, when she takes that step, we would call it the step of conversion, leaving this old world with all of its familiarity, and leaving this kingdom with its gods behind, and when she steps out and is converted, then it erases all of her Moabite past and all of the, the exclusion even the, the, exclusive, the exclusive prohibitions that were so strongly in place, even those, you know, vanish like the morning mist. I think there's some place else in the Bible where this is spoken about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul is speaking to a group of Christians, and he says, remember that in your previous life, you were sexually immoral, you were idolaters, adulterers, Some of you were men who had sex with other men. You were thieves. You were greedy. You were drunks. You were slanderers. You were swindlers. He says, that's what you once were. But now, but now that you have come to Jesus, you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And you have been made part of God's family See, in, when a person takes that step of c- committed faith, their past is washed away, and exclusion gives way to embrace. But that's a very big step, isn't it? In fact, it's, it, you could say it's the most, the most important step. I'll use this il- illustration. Uh, let's say that you are in the most southerly point of the United States of America, which, roughly speaking, would be Miami. And your goal is to get to Canada in the far north. You have no car, no money. You, you have to hitchhike and walk and walk and hitchhike the entire way north or, or run if you're Forrest Gump, you know, all the way across America. Weeks pass and here, here you are. You, you are. You've come right up to the border's edge. You are literally, you know, one step away from exiting America into the kingdom of Canada. Um, but without that step, you're 100% excluded. You are excluded. In spite of all your painstaking effort, all the miles that you have covered, you haven't left your old kingdom if you haven't taken that step. Um, see, that's the power of conversion the Bible speaks about. Leaving one kingdom And one set of gods for the true God as he revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And my prayer, my hope is that you would be willing to, if you have not already, take that step. 
the step of non-belief to belief. And what I've decided to do this week, if you look in your bulletin underneath the Lord's Supper here, this is a prayer you can, could pray that is, is really taking that step, the step of um, a prayer of faith that's then you know, followed up by, by baptism. It's the most important step you'll ever take. The fourth feature of the book of Ruth, I guess it's actually a feature of the gospel of Matthew, to be entirely honest. Uh, Before Matthew gives us the birth narratives of Jesus Christ, so before he gives us the Christmas story, he gives us something else. He gives us the genealogy of Jesus. We know that genealogies were very important in their day. Not very important in ours, but your genealogy at that time was essentially your your resume. It was your CV. It was the way that you showed that you were legitimate. And you would put in your resume, you would list all of the people who would give you credibility. Well, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is a very peculiar one. Uh, We'd expect it to be entirely uh, full of men. The ancient Near East patriarchal culture, the way that a family's name and line and inheritance, it would always go through the oldest male heir of the family. So we always expect and always find an all-male genealogy in all of the ancient genealogies. Um, That's what we would expect. We would also expect that if this is the family tree of Jesus, then these people in the genealogy are going to be the finest cut of human beings that have ever lived. (laughs) They're going to be the best the human race has ever produced because the offspring is the immaculate one, the holy one of God, the son of God. And so we would kind of expect that his family tree would be a shining example of moral fiber. (laughs) Well, it doesn't work out that way. It turns out that most of Matthew's genealogy for Jesus is male, but there are five women included in the genealogy, and of these women, every one of them sort of has a desperate story of a scandalous past. So one of the women was pregnant through incest. The second woman, Ruth, was uh, Interracial marriage, she married, she was a Moabite who married an Israelite, and, you know, interracial marriage was frowned upon back then. The third woman was a Canaanite prostitute. The fourth woman had a child through an extramarital affair. And the fifth woman, a.k.a. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was pregnant out of wedlock, which was, in its own way, scandalous, to be sure. The question you immediately have when you begin in the Gospel of Matthew is, why did he put all the dirty laundry on the first page? Why would you put all these, these stories of, um, of sin right there? And I hope you already know the answer to the question. If the Son of God was to come into the world through a perfectly pure and spotless people, then he never would have come, would he? He never would have come because... No such people has ever existed. No, Jesus is coming into the darkness and depravity of a real world, not a utopian world, but this world. And there's no other way to do that and come into the world being human, but to come into the world through a long line of sin and brokenness. 
I think it's an, another thing that's being said is Jesus is not ashamed of his ancestors' past. Uh, he's committed to healing that past. In fact, he's come to heal every part of the universe that's broken and bring bright light to every place that's, that's dark. I think what, the reason uh, Matthew begins his, his gospel like this too is one of the central features of Christianity and most people misunderstand it in this regard. Christianity asks this question. It doesn't ask, are you good enough for God? It asks, are you bad enough for God? That's what we say in the Christianity Explored class that I teach in the high school students and we did back this summer. I mean, that is the real test. You're only ready to become a Christian if you're bad enough for God and know yourself to be a sinner because it's, it's the sinner and the sick whom Jesus has come to heal, not the good and righteous people. Finally, uh, have you ever heard of the Bible Project? Bible Project. That's kind of a broad, you say, I think I might have heard that one before because there are a lot of things under that title. The Bible Project, I utilized it both in our uh, youth group sometimes and then in Sunday school as well. It was a crowdfunded project um, begun by two Christian guys in Portland, Oregon, who decided they wanted to get people to read the Bible intelligently with view of the bigger picture and also with view of the individual structure of books and theatic, thematic elements that go run throughout the Bible. So they started making these animated videos that are about 10 minutes in length to explain b- both biblical themes and the structure of every book of the Bible all of the videos are on YouTube. All of them are free. And in my opinion, it's probably, I don't know that there's actually a better resource out there anywhere for, for this kind of stuff. And you say animated videos, that sounds a little cheesy. Oh no, they, I mean, they are the best. They're, they're quite incredible. The motto and philosophy of ministry of the Bible Project is uh, this. We believe the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. We believe the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. So to finish the sermon this morning, I'd like us to consider the big picture of which Ruth plays just the little small piece. What is the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. He has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and uh, a garden full of life. To crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam, or Adam and Eve. Uh, they are made in God's, as God's image, which means that they are commissioned to rule this beautiful world he's created on his behalf, uh, and to harness all of its of the world's potential and create even more beauty and order. That's the Garden of Eden. So this is the Bible begins as a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is how? Humanity faces a choice. It's a choice that is represented by a fruit tree. Humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil, or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own. 
which God warns will kill them. Then they hear this voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It will give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. So they seize this this knowledge. And as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately an entire civilization called Babylon that has redefined evil as good. And so, the story goes next. God scatters this corrupted human project. But here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in uh, to the story of a single man and woman who come out of Babylon. Their names are Adam, or Adam, Abraham and Sarah. God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. So this is why the rest of the Bible story is about Abraham's family. Unfortunately, it doesn't go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives into the same temptation from the beginning. They redefine good and evil on their own terms apart from God. Even when the best people that they had were in charge, that is rulers who loved God's guidance, God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in. Israel was warmed by their prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon. This time they did go as conquerors, conquered captives living in exile. Even with God's personal guidance, Israel, Abraham's family, fails. Well, who can succeed? The prophets said that the story was not over. God is going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. At this point of the Bible, the part we call the Old Testament ends. And what's crazy about the Old Testament is it ends with all of these promises left hanging. No leader emerges. No new kingdom emerges. It's just all flat. But when the biblical story continues in the New Testament, immediately we are introduced to a man in the Gospel of Matthew who comes from the line of Israel's kings with a a somewhat checkered genealogy, but this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he said he was bringing all the promises to their completion. And he confronted the dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into, but Jesus resisted its power. Then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself, Jesus also taught about God's definition of good and evil. He said that real power is found in serving others. And according to Jesus, it is people who love the poor and even love their enemies. Those are the kinds of people who will actually rule the world. Which sounds kind of confusing, but it's also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is actually God become human to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil, more powerful than even death itself. So, now humanity is presented with a new choice, represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human, 
or venture into this new way of the cross. In the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by the very power of God. People, they become people who are loved and forgiven by God, and therefore they are people who love and forgive others in return. Then the rest of the Bible is basically about how this Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming new communities, which we call churches, groups of people who also followed the way of Jesus. Now, they faced problems, of course. There was persecution from the outside by people in power. Uh, Inside, there was confusion in some of the churches, even compromised by some of the members of the church, because following Jesus is really hard. So the movement's leaders, called apostles, wrote letters to to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful in the difficult way of Jesus. Finally, I know this is long, but I think it's beautiful. Finally, all the followers of Jesus are called to hope for the day when he will come again and change everything. See, the Bible ends by pointing to the future day when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, when heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together again in the love and power of God. Ruth is, as I began this sermon saying, it's a beautiful piece of theological art. It was written 3,000 years ago. And if you know anything about the book of Ruth, you know it builds to the end where we find a genealogy. (laughs) And in, in that genealogy, it's preparing the people for the arrival of a guy by the name of King David. Well, in Advent, we are also preparing for an arrival The next four weeks, uh, Advent simply means arrival, and for the next four weeks, we are going to to study, uh, not only to prepare ourselves for the arrival of Jesus on Christmas morning, but also to prepare ourselves for the future day when he returns and evil is eradicated. We, as followers of Jesus, are called to anticipate that day when he will come and change everything and make it the way It's supposed to be again. Amen.